Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Battlefields and Bourbon podcast, the podcast where we talk bourbon whiskey and American Civil War history. I'm Elijah, joined by my co-host Jack, and we've got a special one for you tonight. We've got Blanton's Single Barrel Bourbon from Buffalo Trace Distillery over in Frankfort, Kentucky. Um, so a single barrel bourbon is a bourbon, as it as the name notates, comes from one single barrel, uh, and that does a lot for the flavor of a bourbon. I mean, it can change the flavor profile from barrel to barrel, um, depending on the age, uh, the level in the rickhouse that it was aged, uh, all those different kinds of stuff kind of playing into what brings that flavor profile. Obviously, it's the same recipe, so it's not going to have too, too much difference, but you'll notice some subtle nuances here and there of different, uh, I guess, flavor notes that kind of poke through more than others, depending on the bottle, depending on the barrel, all that good stuff. Um, these bottles are actually uh, bottled by hand, so that way no other uh, like bottling machinery or anything gets any other residue from other bourbons in the bottle, so it's a true single barrel. Um, the idea for this single barrel bourbon came uh, in 1984 uh, to revitalize a dying bourbon market. Um, Elmer T. Lee was the master distiller at the time at Buffalo Trace, and he thought that you know, the bourbon market needs something new and needs something kind of exciting to try to bring the boom back because in the 80s, uh, it was more like the clear liquor and that kind of thing. So bourbon as a whole was kind of on the, on its way out. I mean, distilleries were closing up um, and that's how Buffalo Trace became the one to acquire so many different brands such as like Eagle Rare and Buffalo Trace and all these other different name brands that they have. Um, but yeah, um, Elmer T. Lee launched the Blanton's Single Barrel Bourbon in 1984 as a way to commemorate um, Albert Blanton, a uh, plant manager at Buffalo Trace back in the day. Um, and the idea was that Albert Blanton preferred his bourbon from one single barrel in Warehouse H. So whenever he would have like social gatherings, um, any kind of like just, hey, I want a bourbon, he'd tell his fellas to go grab him a barrel from Warehouse H., and that's where the idea kind of came from. Um, the one thing about Warehouse H that kind of makes it unique is that it's the only metal-sided warehouse at Buffalo Trace. So everywhere else, it's all brick, um, like Warehouse C or E.H. Taylor's age. That's that's a brick warehouse. So a sheet metal warehouse like that's going to kind of heat up faster. The temperature is going to be a little more variable, um, especially in those hot Kentucky summers. Um, so you're going to get a lot more... Uh, volatility, I would say, in terms of the flavor that you're going to get from that. Um, so Blanton's is aged, I believe, six to eight years. Um, depends on the barrel. And obviously, the master distiller is deciding uh, when when a barrel is mature enough to bottle. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, Blanton's is, at least the baseline Blanton's, uh, is bottled at 93 proof. Uh, so that's going to be 46.5% alcohol by volume, if you care about that. Um, this is their mash bill number two. Um, that's their high rye mash bill. And the experts believe that it's in the 10 to 12% rye range. Um, there's no real way of knowing because they don't disclose their mash bills. And I believe last week we had maybe mentioned, I think you might have mentioned high rye being mm -hmm. moonshine. And I wanted to clear that up for our listeners just because, just because I don't know if, if there's any confusion on that. So moonshine is what Buffalo Trace would call white dog. Um, other distilleries would call it high wine, uh, new make. There's all different kinds of names for it. 
But really what that is, is the uh, clear liquor that's fresh off the still. Okay. So that's like, after it's been run, before you put it in the barrel, that's your moonshine, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, so not necessarily the mash bill that has anything to do with it, what it, what it is in terms of shine or white dog or whatever that is. Um, but yeah, so that's, I just wanted to, to clear that one up in case that might've confused anybody last week. Um, but with Blanton's and just about any other Buffalo Trace product, like I mentioned last week as well, uh, you got to be careful of the price gougers because Blanton's, uh, MSRP on that one is about $60. Uh, but normally you'll see that going for, I've seen it go for as much as 250. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what to do with your money, but Please don't do that. I mean, that's just going to, the secondary market is just insane as it is. And we don't need any more of that being contributed to it. Um, But yeah, um, a cool fact about the uh, Blanton's bourbon is that the cork on top, you guys can't see it because we're not filming this one. Uh, It's got a little horse jockey on the top. And I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with this one. Uh, The jockey is in different positions um, and it kind of demonstrates the jockey going through an entire derby race. Um, and at the bottom of the horse on each cork top is a letter. And the letters spell out Blanton. So you've got your B-L-A-N-T-O-N-S. Um, and if you collect all those horse tops, it'll show you kind of the progression of the race. Um, and if you collect them all, you can send them off to Buffalo Trace. And I believe they'll mount them on a barrel stave for you and send it back to you as like kind of a, hey, congrats on buying all of our stuff <laughs> type of thing. But yeah, we can get right into this one and uh, see what we what we think of it. I know I've had this one quite a few times, but this is your first time, Jack, yeah. right? Yeah, based just based off visual alone. I mean, this is a very appealing bottle. Oh, yeah, the presentation I mean, on this thing, they've got that down. Buffalo Trace has mastered that one. Being a, you know, was this something, the bottle, that was a part of it back when they first started producing it in, like, the 80s? or? Yeah, this, this has been the original bottle style um, since the get- and I think that's part of what makes it so unique and so recognizable. I mean, like this bottle looks like what bourbon should be bottled in. I mean, this is like, like it just looks like a gentleman's drink. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, if you want to taste it, give it a shot. I mean, give it a little nosing, see what you think. Yeah. Learning all the techniques from last week. Right. Right. (laughs) For me personally, um, I always pick up a lot of brown sugar, uh, caramel vanilla off of that one. Mm Mm-hmm. And I know for being a higher rye bourbon, it's supposed to give you more of like a spiciness. You might pick that up a little bit, but me personally, I get a lot of like baking spices and like a sugary sweetness out of that one. I mean, that's just me personally. Some people will attack you for the way that you feel. I can see where you're coming from on the spices. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. it's not your traditional like burn your mouth liquor. It's like... The spices that's creating that flavor and yeah, I, yeah, I get that. Yeah, that heat's not like an alcohol burn. It's more of like like your baking spices and stuff. It's really enjoyable. I mean, people will. Uh, what's a nice way to put this? People will will crap on uh, Blanton's uh, either because they can't get it or they can't <laughs> get it for retail, or just the overall hype around it. I mean, the hype is the hype is real with this one in terms of people chasing it down and trying to collect them all. I mean, I personally would never pay more than retail for any bourbon. That's just me. A lot of people will do that. They will they will gladly pay a lot of money for this stuff. Just I mean, to it, have it. Just to have it, yep. yeah. 
Yeah, it's. I mean, it's good stuff. It, it's it's good bourbon, but the craze behind it, I think, has kind of soured people's taste for it because, I mean, it'll do that with anything. I mean, anything nice when a bunch of people find out about it and kind of ruin it for the rest of us. It's it, you know, it'll kind of steer you away from it. Well, but, we were talking about this in episode one with Eagle Rare. It's one of those ones that's like, you know, gets knocked down a bunch by yeah. people, but it's because it's a, you know. It's a good bourbon and yeah. it's, it's, you know, the craze behind it's legit. And I could see where the same is for, for this bourbon here. Yeah. Any of uh, Buffalo Traces, I guess what you would call Trinity, Buffalo Trace, Eagle Rare, Blanton's, they're all good bourbons. Like nobody, I don't think anybody's saying that they're not. It's just the fact that people think that they're overhyped or, you know, chased after too much to the point where it just doesn't make it enjoyable anymore. Because if you could go into a store and find this thing sitting on the shelf, and, yeah. and just grab it whenever you want it and like crack a bottle and have it with your friends and not have to worry about like, you know, savoring the bottle as like, a, oh, I have to make this thing last for a year because I never know when I'll see it again. Mm-hmm. That can kind of deter people. And luckily for some of our bourbon lovers, they I mean, some people probably already know this. Um, Buffalo Trace is doing their expansion. Uh, they started that, I want to say maybe a year ago, maybe two years ago. Pretty big expansion. I mean, I, I don't know the exact dollar amount, but it's massive. I mean, they bought land across the river from the distillery to start popping up more warehouses and stuff. They just, uh, I believe earlier this spring, opened up another column still to double their production. So that extra column still is producing an extra 60,000 gallons of whiskey a day. That's crazy. <laughs> and that's obviously got to go towards all their brands because they own a, a whole slew of brands. But 60,000 gallons That's, a day, yeah, and one that. barrel holds 53 gallons, I mean, you're, in a few years, I mean, obviously got to take some time to age and stuff, but in a few years, I think the market for Buffalo Trace products will start to kind of replenish itself. I mean, it's going to be, I don't want to say everywhere, because people will still hoard it, but it'll be a lot easier to find, I think, and that'll be that'll be promising for some people that may have been... A little soured uh, towards Buffalo Trace and their products uh, beforehand or in current day. So something to look forward to in the future. Yeah, for sure. When we're older. <laughs> but uh, I guess, Elijah, do you want to let the let the audience know why we picked this bourbon for, for this episode? Sure. Yeah. So um, aside from it being a mouthful, Blanton's and Brandy Station, Battlefields and Bourbon, a bunch of bees here. Um the horse on top is going to go right into the <laughs> battle that we're talking about. Brandy Station being one of the largest cavalry battles in the American Civil War. Um, and like I said, Brandy Station. So this one is June 9th, 1863, part of our Gettysburg campaign. Um, there's a lot of different discrepancies. I don't want to say discrepancies. A lot of opinions on Brandy Station as what it was. The largest cavalry battle? Largest cavalry charge? Yeah, I mean... Largest battle with cavalry. Yeah, I mean, what you are and we, I were talking. What are we before, doing here? You and I were talking before the podcast about this and the research we've been doing. Um, I'm looking at the Battle of Brainy Station um, by Eric J. Wittenberg. It's done through History Press, um, and the subtitle of that is North America's Largest Cavalry Battle. And then that got me thinking, um, like, okay, but there's infantry involved. And then I hear some of the you know the professionals of that of the battle talking. And um, they're trying to explain it themselves, but it's just like I'm having a really difficult time. And this is just me, I guess, defining what it is because there is infantry from the Federals um, that are engaged and they're they're there. They're a part of the plan. So I right. know like the battle, the largest 
only cavalry battle was Trevelyan Station. And then um, before this point, the largest, I think they say the largest cavalry battle up before Brandy Station during the war is Kelly's Ford, which is just a little bit before that. And then Brandy Station happens. Um, I mean, de- it's definitely the largest, mostly cavalry battle, I guess, if that yeah. makes sense. I if, don't know. That'll that'll simplify it for some people. Yeah, if anybody has a clear definition of how we can identify this battle legit- legitimately, please reach out <laughs> and, yeah, let, and let us, us know. Because I'm not saying it's one thing or the other. It's just I cannot process what this is. But yeah, it can be confusing. There's a lot of horses, but there's some guys that are marching. So, mm-hmm. um, But it's definitely a, a fascinating battle. And yeah, continue with uh, what, what information you've got for this. Elijah. Yeah, so um, this is going to take place just after Chancellorsville. Um, Jackson had just passed away and everything like that. Um, and Stuart and his men are kind of falling back to the vicinity of Culpeper Courthouse just to kind of, you know, regroup, see what the next plan is. Obviously, the Gettysburg campaign is kind of in its early stages here. Um, and Stewart's just in camp at Brandy Station. Um, his cavalry are just kind of resting after the battle and the campaign that they've been on the Chancellorsville. Um, and they kind of get caught off guard by Alfred Pleasanton's cavalry. Um, and, and in the worst way possible, too, because Stewart, in the days prior, had his men get up in their best and, you know, go out to Inlet Station to do a uh, grand review for General Lee. And they get out there, and they're all in their best, and they're all ready to go, and Lee doesn't show for this one. So, at least this is my understanding of it. Lee doesn't show, and Stuart's like, ah, well, I'll review you guys anyway. We'll come back tomorrow or a day later, a day or two later, and run it back for Lee. Yeah. (laughs) So, they do it again, all in their best and all that stuff. And on top of that, they do what I understand is a simulated battle, a mock battle, so they do like a demo cavalry charge and an artillery demonstration and all this other stuff, which seems kind of, I don't want to say wasteful, but kind of wasteful because you're tiring out your men, your horses. Um, obviously, any metal detectorist, relic hunter, archaeologist knows that anytime this is happening, they're dropping bullets, um, whether they're in battle or not, they're in camp. So they're kind of expending ammunition that they need to be hanging on to for Gettysburg. Because every little bit is going to be counting for Gettysburg and the Gettysburg campaign. Because if they're going to invade north, you want to have as much supplies and ammunition as you've got. Instead of kind of, you know, throwing it willy-nilly at, oh, let's do a grand review right now because we're about to go north. Like, that that, that idea to me doesn't seem great. And I know Stuart faced some backlash um, from some of the Confederate newspapers about, you know, just kind of trying to be... I don't know if they called him arrogant, but it was more so kind of a an arrogance to him. Well, he had balls after these two. Like he had like, you know, dances that he hosted after each review. So twice he'll host these balls where he's inviting guests and people are coming down from, you know, political spheres and things like that to come watch the reviews, but then also partake in the, these Jip Stewart balls. So um, it's, uh you know, these, these high fluent, you know, places and these people that are coming and it's just jeb stewart in his element with that absolutely the dashing cavalier has to put on a show doesn't he yeah so yeah i mean he's doing all this stuff and june 9th comes around and his his men are in camp um the horse artillery i guess it would be like john pelham's guys and everything are in camp as well and they're the ones that get surprise attacked first i guess from pelham's dead 
at that point. Yeah, he's killed at Kelly's Ford. That's right, that's right, that's right. So excuse me for on that one. So it would be Stewart's horse artillery minus John Pelham. Um, and the artillery is there kind of at the fords where they can kind of swing the guns if they need to in the event of an attack, and they're not really prepared for it. Pleasanton's cavalry is coming, and they catch them off guard, and then the rest just kind of turns to hell. So yeah, what do you think about that? <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, uh, Chip Stewart's there. He's got, um, I guess, their brigade commanders um at the uh at, at the confederate level um with uh let me get my people here um jones brigade william henry fitzhugh lee's brigade hampton's brigade robert's brigade um all those guys are there and at the same time pleasanton or john buford the division commander under pleasanton knows this um because they've got intel that they're receiving um, from across the Rappahannock River, and that's what's separating these armies is the Rappahannock River, and to um, and, and the Confederate cavalry at the time is acting like a screen between what Lee's trying to do ultimately, and that's to get his army west and then up, whether it's on one side of the Blue Ridge, like we discussed with Second Winchester, or on the other side. So um, the cavalry is going to their intention is to be a screen or a, a, an object in between the Federals in the main Confederate force moving north. Um, we got to keep in mind that this this battle, it's important afterwards, but also it's important in the moment for defining what will be Federal cavalry for the remainder of the war. This is uh, like their big hurrah. This is it. Uh, Joe Hooker, who's still in command at this point of the Army of the Potomac, has uh, created the Cavalry Corps, put uh, Alfred Pleasanton in charge of it, and um, this is the first time that Cavalry will be used, like Cavalry should be used, in a sense, and um, be combined as one corps, not as small regiments that are attached to infantry and under the command of infantry leadership um, to be as couriers or scouts or things like that. They're being used as horse soldiers, and that's important because the Confederates more or less have been acting in that fashion as the Cavaliers, you know, for the, the, the period you know, leading up to Brandy Station. Right. Um, with, uh, yeah, and like you said, Jeb Stewart's camped in and around this area with those other um, other brigades of um, the Confederate Cavalry there. Um, how it's going to kick off is Alfred Pleasanton's going to split himself into wings with um, John Buford's division. Um moving towards Beverly's Ford, which is kind of on the northern side of the battlefield, if you're looking at a map, northeastern side. And then about six miles downstream from there is Kelly's Ford. And that's where um, Greg and um, I think it's, yeah, Greg and Dufay is under him or with him is going to cross as well. And uh, the target is Brandy Station. To meet there and then rendezvous at Brandy Station, clean up everything on the way, and then move towards Culpeper Courthouse. So that's the plan going into it. And about 4.30 in the morning, John Buford's cavalrymen will cross um, with uh, specifically leading off the, the, you know, the stepping off point of this battle is the 8th New York Cavalry being personally led by uh, Benjamin Grimes Davis, who is, I believe, first cousins with President Jefferson Davis. <laughs> and he is oh, ironic. Uh, he's a loyal man to the United States, and he is leading his former regiment, uh, the 8th New York Cavalry, across. Um, they're going to come into contact with skirmishers from the 6th Virginia Cavalry, 
uh, there along the um, the Beverly's Ford Road. And uh, as they're coming in the early mornings, you know, the Confederates are breaking, you know, they're they're hearing the, the pops going off. They know something's coming. So more Confederate forces are going to start and be pumped in. Uh, Dan Davis, who I'm going to mention quite a bit, I guess, in this episode, uh, historian, he uh, he kind of uses the reference poking of the, the sleeping bear or the, the hornet's nest per se. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, this couple skirmishers, which is just going to turn into one big thing. And if you look at the maps of this battle, that's exactly what happens. There's a great account that um, as as Benjamin Grimes Davis is leading these troops across the Rappahannock River, and as he's coming into contact with the 6th Virginia Cavalry, he notices this this connection between the two regiments, and um, uh, he's going to you know take leadership and lead them across up the road. Uh, during that, he's going to sense something behind him as he's leading his men along, and as he turns around, he swings his saber at another, um, it's Lieutenant Robert Allen of the 6th Virginia, and um, he's going to swing his saber at him. R- Allen's going to duck that saber, pull his revolver, and shoot him square in the forehead. Oh, gosh. And he'll, <laughs> and he'll, he'll drop dead before he can even touch the ground. Um, mm. So that's what's, you know, starting off this battle. Uh, it's it's pretty intense. Um, but, you know, the last thing he says to those boys is, stand firm, 8th New York, and then he's killed right after that. Um Actually, That's the not first very motivating. Yeah. <laughs> not at all. the the first The first casualty um, is uh, is going to be taken during this. The first casualty of the Gettysburg campaign is going to be taken during this beginning action. It's not Grimes Davis. It's going to be uh, Henry Cutler, I believe, of the Eighth New York, and he'll be the first casualty of the Gettysburg campaign. So, to put it in a little bit of perspective, there. Um, Ultimately, like he's like like uh, historian Dan Davis says, he definitely woke up the uh, hornet's nest here. And um, during this time, more of the uh, more of the Federals are going to start coming across and fanning out. So he's thinking, okay, if I can't get around the Confederates that are coming to me on the Beverly's Ford Road, let me spread out to the right and to the left and move around them. Um, but what he's just going to come into contact with then is. Uh, more more Confederates that are there, specifically under Grumble Jones and uh, Wade Hampton's Confederates that are there. Um, the more regiments coming onto the field are some United States Cavalry units, some New York units, West Virginia, Indiana, and Pennsylvanians. Um, they're going to come out, and this is in the general vicinity, and we'll talk about the, the modern-day battlefield towards the end, but if you are familiar with where the Culpeper Regional Airport is there, this is right across the grounds there. The Beverly Ford Road hugs the border of that property, so it's just right through there. And the Confederates are going to form a position on um, Saint where Saint James Church is, Saint James Episcopal Church. Um, this was a church that was there at the time of the battle. Um, it's a you know brick structure. Today it's no longer standing, but it's along the roads there and the ridge that that's on, where the Confederates under Grumble Jones and Wade Hampton are going to form a defensive position with some of that artillery forming up. And open, you know, opening towards, opening fire towards the ground in front of them where the Federals are coming from, and then as the road kind of that way turns, uh, Grumble Jones's men, the Sixth and Seventh Virginia Cavalry, is going to form on that side, forming like an L-shaped line, um, and this is where some of those, you know, the first beginning charges are going to take place. These open cavalry charges against the Confederate positions. Um, there's a an account. Uh, so during this fighting, 
and I'll reference, use a couple quotes in this. During this fighting, and it's hot and heavy with these cavalry charges moving across a lot of open ground in front of these Confederates. There's a lot of ravines, so the terrain's not perfectly flat. So as they're approaching the Confederates, they're going to dip down into a ravine and lose sight of them and then come back up. Um, but uh, there's an account uh, from the Grumble Jones about learning about the advance of Greg's men. And remember I said Greg's is crossing at Kelly's Ford, so about six miles from this vicinity, roughly. Mm-hmm. Um, so Grumble Jones has couriers coming back and forth to him all day, uh, just notifying him of, of you know, movements and things like that. And he gets word about Greg uh, crossing Kelly's Ford and coming into the vicinity of, of uh, Brandy Station. And uh, after hearing this... Um, he sends a courier to Stuart to let him know, you know, he's the superior. Let me let, let me let Stuart know what's going on. Right. He's got, cause Stuart's headquarters is on Fleetwood Hill, mm-hmm. uh, which is a little bit to the, I guess it would be the Southwest of where the area St. James church where Stuart, I mean, where Jones and Hampton are fighting and engaged with the federals currently, uh, under, uh, Whiting, I believe in, in Devon. Um, and, uh, so he's going to send his courier to go talk to, you know, let, let his commander, Jeb Stewart know, that there's some Federals headed his way. Um, well, Stuart hears this, and he's like, Psh, you know, he's like, eh, uh, tell, <laughs> he says, tell General Jones to attend to the Yankees in his front, and I'll watch for the flanks. Um, when Jones heard this, heard Stuart's response. Huh? Yeah. Jones replied very, you know, angrily. Uh, so he thinks they ain't coming, does he? Well, let him, alo- <laughs> let him alone. He'll damned well soon see for himself. And... That he does. He's gonna find out. Yeah, he's gonna he's, he's gonna exactly find right. out. Exactly uh, right. So as the as the fighting continues uh, in the vicinity of you know um, St James Church, ultimately focus is gonna shift because of Greg's force coming towards the area Brandy Station, which is closer to uh, Fleetwood Hill. So that's um, where the action begins to shift southward towards. Fleetwood so Hill. this will shift for the Confederates, but at the same time the federal focus will then shift specifically Buford's focus, which is the right wing of this federal attack. Um, Buford's focus will shift, uh, but not towards Fleetwood Hill. Um, Buford's focus will shift uh, in the direction um, of U Ridge, which mm-hmm. is just a little ways down. Um, there's an area known as Buford's Knoll today, and that's where Buford will get to the field assess and put some artillery there. Uh, it's a high position for the Federals as they're coming into the battlefield. Um, so he'll come into contact with some Federals under Rooney Lee um, to to what would be his right. So as as the, the battle at St. You know the action at St. James Church begins to shift, it doesn't seem to you know no progress is made. C- Confederates are, arrive to the right of um, of you know he's going to want to go around this. Okay, so uh, you know he this is. This is as a result of trying to go around the Federals he was getting, I mean, the Confederates he was getting uh, stuck with on Beverly's Ford Road. So he's like, all right, well, let's go around again. Well, what's in his way is a, a stone wall that is being occupied by Rooney Lee um, in, in, his, uh, in his Virginia and North Carolina regiments of cavalry there. Um, so that's where Buford's focus will shift. Um, at the same time... Um, Stewart has his own, uh, his own courier. Uh, I'm trying to remember the, uh, the name of him off, offhand. Um, 
I don't know if I have it on me, but last name McClellan. Um, and I think he's first cousins with McClellan. Ah, so weird stuff here, but he's here, but he's with Stewart this time. Right. Um, and, uh, so he's as, as Stewart's riding between the area of St. James church and Fleetwood Hill, um, which all the all the, obviously all the main Confederate focus is shift towards the area of St James Church because that's where the fighting's coming, but now there's you know Stewart's at least heard per Jones that that Federals are in pursuit of Brandy Station you know Federals have at least caught, crossed Kelly's Ford from the south from the south and are headed north um, towards uh, Brandy Station, so he's got wind of this but he's not believing it and then um, and uh, all of a sudden a Confederate gun comes rushing towards the vicinity of Fleetwood Hill from the direction of Brandy Station. And um, as uh, as that happens, um, the Yankees are at Brandy, um, yelled as the, the riders raced up to Stewart at St. James Church. Um, at that point, once Stewart gets wind that the, you know, from behind him, the, the Federals are coming. Now um, he's starting to believe it. Yeah. He's like, wait a minute, he's, he, he might be right. <laughs> so he's, he dispatches uh, the, the 12th Virginia Cavalry, 35th Battalion of Virginia Cavalry, so Jones Brigade, um, at that point, and then uh, tells McClellan, his, his uh, scout or his courier, to go for Hampton. So send Wade Hampton. Um, Stuart you know, tells one of his staff officers to come, for God's sakes, bring Hampton. So he needs that second... <laughs> Uh, brigade from the area of St. James Church to come to Fleetwood Hill. Um, and I don't know if you have you been out to the battlefield yet ever to. I've actually not been down that way. I mean, I've, I've passed Kelly's Ford um, on my way to Orange County before, but never to to the battlefield itself to see like the landscape and stuff. Yeah, it's and I'll talk about this at the end. It's just it's to see how close these spots are, but then the terrain of them, it really puts in perspective you know, the challenges, but then also at the same time, the weaknesses that this position, the Confederates had held, um, for them. So what's, what's ultimately going to happen once Jones and Hampton, uh, obviously Jones, a couple regiments were pulled first to go towards, um, go towards Fleetwood Hill. Um, at that point, that's the, that's those Virginia, a couple Virginia cavalry regiments. And at that point, um, Wyndham's brigade under under Greg comes f- from the uh, be from kind of the west to east, mm-hmm. um, you know. So as the Confederates are coming in from the right, let's say the Federals are coming in on the left, kind of right at the same time uh, at Fleetwood Hill. Just a clash. Um, yeah, and, hill, and yeah. Uh, this is half of uh, this is half of Greg's, or this is gr- one of Greg's divisions under Wyndham, um, and they come fight, and then this is kind of the, like the fight for Fleetwood Hill. So all the all focus, at least for this time, for Stewart's men, except for what Rooney Lee's doing up at U Ridge, just you know handling Buford up there. Mm-hmm. Um, this is like the you know the battle. This is where Stewart's headquarters was. This is you know this is a spot that commanded the landscape, at least the southern landscape of the battlefield. It overlooks the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. It um, you know you can see buildings from brandy station off to the distance so it's a it's a commanding spot and um the federals know that and the federals are going for it and some of the first regiments to get engaged are uh regiments like the 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 first new jersey and um they're actually going to have i believe it's their i believe it's their colonel uh at least their commander uh lieutenant colonel 
Virgil Broderick. Um, and the second in command uh, will be will be killed. Um, they say Colonel Broderick fought, fought like a lion. Wherever the fight was the fiercest, his voice could be heard cheering on his men and his revolver and saber dealing death. Uh, he'd be mortally wounded. And um, it's a hell of a way to go. Yeah. And Wyndham himself uh, would be go down with a with a leg wound. Um, so this this fighting up here is vicious. Um, at the same time, this happens. Um, the, the, and this is just some, you know, like I said, heavy, heavy cavalry fighting. Um, the, um, as at the same time when Jones, I think it's Jones's guys arrive, sorry, Hampton's guys arrive, um, and start, you know, turning the tide for the Confederates on there. Kilpatrick's men under, under Greg are going to mm-hmm. come in and kind of fill. They're going to come from the direction of the Southeast moving to fill, the you know the middle area of Fleetwood Hill um, regiments like the Tenth New York, Second New York, and First Maine Cavalry is going to come and kind of fill this and just hit them from the side. Um, Kilpatrick, there's a great account of his his engaging with the Confederates up there um, that uh, he runs into an old uh, fr- old classmate of his from West Point on the other side. And um, the the Confederate spotted Kilpatrick, um, you know, fired his pistol at him and um, missed. And Little Kill, it says, as he was known, um, drew his saber and the officers fenced. <laughs> hmm. uh, both men fought like tigers at bay, said a soldier. Um, and uh, he slashed again, killing the Confederate, uh, riding away and proclaimed that right's a wrong. I have wanted to meet him ever since the war commenced. So this is personal stuff. And I think a lot Damn. of people forget. I, I know infantry fighting, especially when you're doing hand-to-hand combat, it's pretty intense. But for the most part, cavalry, you know, and I guess, for instance, when you're dismounted, though, this isn't the case. But from what I've seen and, and researched and stuff, that's, you know, you're up in there. You're slashing yeah. sabers. You are charging through lines, into lines. It's a pretty personal. A lot of moving parts, yeah. Pretty personal fight and to you know, and even to, to draw a sword at someone and you're not even yeah. using a gun is a, a little more personal of a, you know. And it's interesting to see too that, that Kilpatrick is, has such a, a bitterness towards an old friend and an old classmate. I mean, because usually speaking um, in terms of like the Civil War as a whole, classmates from West Point or wherever they may have attended were you know, still kind of friends if they ever kind of happened upon each other on the battlefield or at the surrender or wherever the case may have been. I mean, like Custer and Rosser, for example, at mm-hmm. Tomsbrook and like them kind of, you know, chasing each other around just to mess with each other and that kind of thing. That's like a kind of a, a, a friendly little gotcha in the middle of a horrible war, whereas Kilpatrick over here is like really ready to kill one of his what you would think would be a friend in the middle of, I mean, obviously war probably does a lot to you, but like, it's one of those things that's like kind of crazy to think about, like killing a friend and a classmate yeah. in the middle of something like that. Well, that it's, whole brother against brother thing. It's and, it's real. Yeah. It's very real. And that's, I mean, it's a sad thing to think about, but that's one of the ones that you have to really put into perspective. And I think stuff like this, these accounts, especially the accounts that are published and ones that have been researched, 
really helped, like you said, put it in perspective, this, Mm -hmm. how intense this war was, the fighting was, how personal it was at times. And it's something that, you know, wars within the, you know, the past hundred years of wars have not taken place on American soil. So, right. You know, it's kind of, you know, this sense of detachment from, you know, the war's not here. So, you know, this is literally in your backyard. That's why I think if people, you know, learn a little, you know, not learn more, but like just, you know, cared more, read, read, read the interpretive sign that's next to your house, you know, read the, read the, you know, the sign you drive by on your way to work every day, I'm sure it'll open up your eyes to a little bit more of what happened there not so long ago. Right. Um, the blood that was shed, you know, so close to home. So, um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Shout out Civil War Trails and all the other folks that Are bring those interpre- interpretive markers to uh, your backyard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. check them out. They're a great resource. Um, but as... Um, you know, Greg's, Greg's of Force is going to arrive, like I said, in, in with uh, Wyndham and Kilpatrick to meet the Confederate defense that's being set up, per se, at, at Fleetwood Hill. Um, from here, um, Stuart will, um, you know, bring more artillery to... Because uh, Fleetwood Hill is not just, you know, a solid hill. It's a, it's a long hill very similar to like the hill that I mentioned in the video we posted on Facebook about Starfort, the Strines Hill. Yeah. It's a ridge line. Uh, Fleetwood Hill runs for about, I think it's like, I think it's two miles. Wow. Uh, two and a half mile ridge that runs like, you know, Southeast to Northwest. Odd that they would call Um, that a hill, but go ahead. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, and at the very end of it is the position where, you know, close it, it bumps up to the, to the Orange and Alexandria Railroad, and this mm-hmm. is where this heavy fighting with Stuart and Greg's men are going to take place. Um, but, you know, going back to what Buford's doing um, on U Ridge, um, Rooney Lee's brigade is going to fall back across U Ridge to the northern end of Fleetwood Hill, so the opposite end. Um, Buford will then um, engage... Um, there, but at that time, Mumford's cavalry will will arrive around 4 p.m. And um, after Mumford arrives on the battlefield, um, Buford decides to withdraw, um, crossing back at Beverly's Ford. I think by the time Mumford arrives, he's going to try and like hit Buford's flank, but you know Buford's already said mm-hmm. and done. This battle, um, you know, I guess it's considered a Confederate victory. That's um, what they call it. Yeah, and and. They yeah ultimately at the end of the day Confederates still hold the ground, the Federals were the one that initiated the attack, and they but fell back. The Confederates got you know beat in the sense of it you know physically beat like it was not they you know, barely held it yeah. you know what I mean like like Stewart's justification for claiming victory was the fact that he held the field at the end of the day like you said, however. Pleasanton's cavalry really demonstrated that they could work as a unit here. I mean, like by operating as a real cavalry corps, like flanking, doing all the things that they needed to do to kind of keep the Confederate cavalry on their toes. Now, I will say to Stuart's credit, 9,500 of his men against 11,000 Federals, including infantry. Including infantry. Yet Pleasanton still could not take the field and you know really give a definitive defeat 
it, it, it's 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 difficult to kind of say one way or the other. Um, I can say Stuart did do his job in repelling the federal cavalry from finding Lee's position, kind of knowing what Lee is up to in terms of, you know, moving northward and all of that good stuff. Um, but Pleasanton kind of did set the stage here for federal cavalry being a dominant presence um, in Virginia and just throughout the war in terms of the Eastern theater. Um, so he kind of did a- accomplish something in that, and that's not anything to kind of, you know, turn a blind eye to. Um, now you'll see that I don't think Hooker was too happy with him getting pushed back, so to speak, but I think there was kind of a miscommunication there because apparently what Hooker had said was kind of locate the Confederate cavalry force and destroy them. Whereas Hooker, or not Hooker, um, Pleasanton was more so under the uh, assumption that this was a reconnaissance type of thing, like locate them, kind of do what you can, engage if necessary, and that was kind of the extent of it. Or at least that's Pleasanton's, I guess, alibi in terms of why he had to get repulsed by a inferior force. Yeah, and, and I mean, keep in mind, the, the Federals... To be able to get in a position at the Fords without being detected at that point, the Confederates had no idea that... And that's not um, easy to do. No, the yeah, the Confederates had no idea that there was Federal sitting on the other side of, you know, Beverly's Ford. So, you know, for them to cross in the morning and, you know, just wait, you know, this is what you're greeted with is, you know, Buford's... That's a wake-up call. Yeah, yeah. So and it, it was a big wake-up call, I would say, for... I think the whole Gettysburg campaign is a wake-up call for Confederate cavalry because of this federal cavalry. Um, yeah, I think the federal cavalry performed really well um, for what for what they did. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, like you said, Stuart holds the field. Um, Lee actually watches part of this battle from, what's the house called? Um, it's not, maybe it's Beauregard or, um, I don't know. I think I had, Barber? Is it Barber? Yeah. I think it's the Barber House or Beauregard. I don't remember. Would which be Beauregard. One. No, that's a different one. Okay, but that's, Lee that's Lee watches brandy. Lee watches the battle, at least the fight on Fleetwood Hill. Because you can probably see Porsche. that from exactly. Cover, you yeah. can, yeah, yeah. So um, that's actually a you know an interesting thing to note because I'm sure at times it wasn't a pretty sight on Fleetwood Hill because it was, was probably, so it was so back and forth. You know, you had these guys and these guys took the hills, and I mean it was ferocious fighting for this. All reality, it was a smaller piece of ground. If you go, the, I mean, it's not small in the sense, but um, you know, when you actually see the crest of the hill and where you can see exactly where these guys came up, I mean, it's like you know, crazy to imagine. Um, that I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna add as well that um, if you haven't been. I would encourage anyone to go out to this to this battlefield or, or you know to understand the landscape. Yeah, to, and we'll say this with every battlefield, hence the name battlefields and bourbon. Um, but so the Brandy Station, I think it's like a you know couple thousand acres that are controlled by the American Battlefield Trust out there, and it's a preservation efforts that begin in the eighties and the possibility of office warehouses and. Formula One racetracks that were planned out there and, you know. Thank God that wasn't the case. Yeah, all kinds of, you know, possibilities. But there's just been a core group of individuals that have dedicated their 
resources and time and, and knowledge to help protect that piece of ground. Um, and through, through the work of the American Battlefield Trust, as well as, you know, groups like the Brandy Station Foundation, which is a nonprofit group that owns and interprets the Graffiti House, which I've never been to and I really want to go to. <laughs> uh, the Graffiti House that's there, I think that's in Brandy Station in the town. Um, I and believe the, so. Yeah, but, and they're, they're dedicated and there's the, I think it's like the Culpeper Battlefield Tours do a lot of opportunities to get out there and get guides as well as, you know, do them on car via hiking or horse, horse riding. Uh, is, is, so you can kind of experience it yeah. for yourself from horseback. And like when I first heard that, I was like, yeah. why do they do horses? But then I was like, oh, it's a cavalry battle. And you can do that at a lot, a lot of other national parks as well and state parks do the horseback riding on the park. So that's a cool little aspect they have. And currently it's all interpreted and owned and maintained. A lot of this land we were talking about, you know, from the attacks of Buford's men at St. James Church to right up to the stone wall mm-hmm. at U Ridge to um, specifically Fleetwood Hill uh, or Miller House Hill, whatever you want to call it. Um, all that, all these landmarks I was discussing are preserved. Small portions like where the airport is and some other development that's there. But I mean, for the most part, this is a pretty well-preserved battlefield and you can visit these areas. You can visit where, you know, the, where Buford's Knoll or Buford viewed the battle, um, the ground where Stuart was riding back and forth from the vicinity of St. James Church to Fleetwood Hill. Um, and you can really put in perspective, you know, the ground that they had to cover, but then also like, you know, where these attacks were coming from. You can actually go to the site of where St. James Church was, even though it's not there now. It mm-hmm. was, and we can go into this a little bit in a second. It was disassembled later for winter quarter huts. Huh. Um, but the American Battlefield Trust has done a really good job with uh, like an augmented reality experience where based off of a sketch that was done before the building was torn, the church was torn apart, they use that sketch to develop uh, like a, you can scan the ground and it pops up. Kind of right an idea of what of it would look like right what now. What it would look like. Yeah. Right. And you can like go inside and stuff like that. It's weird. But um, so you can definitely get a feeling and that's what I recommend. I mean, I, so my book recommendation for this episode is, out flew the sabers it is by eric wittenberg and dan davis um and it's part of the emerging civil war series and these books are great for your first taste of a battle um so your first introduction a beginner's guide the beginner's guide i would say so if you're looking for something a little bit more in depth this probably isn't what's for you but if you're just getting your toes wet with a battle this is huge because with it short chapters but they are they explain it very well. Got have great maps, and um, they also have built in like you know uh, chapters on touring the battlefield. So using the book as a tour guide in a way, and telling you how to get from place to place. Another spot like we didn't mention was that's a part of this as much as all the fighting that takes place at Fleetwood Hill is down by Stevensburg, um, which is a little bit I guess south of everything, but southwest. Yeah, maybe. southwest I think. Um, but. Duf- Don't quote me on it. Yeah, Dufay's guys with Greg's. Dufay split off from Greg after crossing Kelly's Ford and headed in the vicinity of um, Stevensburg to then move towards Brandy Station. And they'll come into con- some contact there too. But this book, Alfred the Sabres, does a nice job of explaining that action and tying it in with the greater action, which just really puts in perspective if you go out there to drive it, walk it, or hike it how large this battle is. It's pretty huge. Like I said, but the gap between the Fords is six miles between 
Beverly's Ford and Kelly's Ford. And that's so. enough as it is. I mean, obviously on horseback, it's a little easier to cover in terms of the ground. But, I mean, even still, you've got quite a wide variety of, not a wide variety, but like wide landscape, you know, to cover for a battlefield, for one single battlefield. I mean, that's that's a lot of ground. Yeah. And this, a lot of this land, and this is what's neat about this whole area is it doesn't just get, you know, christened by fire and during the battle of brandy station it's seen to encampments and actions in 1862 as well as you know early before this battle in 1863 and then um afterwards with all the encampments and stuff that take place this i think culpepper courthouse you know ends up being like a large federal depot for supplies Mm -hmm. uh because of the rail and its location um and then, you know, I think it's, I don't know what, what core it is, but a lot of federals, this is a huge, there's tons of photographs taken of these camps too. This is when St. James Episcopal Church is going to be torn down in 64 for this, mm-hmm. you know, encampment. Um, I guess from an archaeological perspective, metal detecting perspective, I know you've happened to wander from time to time into the county of Culpeper. Yeah. Uh, but Mr. Filbert, do you have any kind of like, you know, background or, or, or description on what's been found out there archaeologically. So believe it or not, I have personally never hunted that area. Um, that's that's one that's on my list. Um, right now I don't have the detector that's capable of doing so. VLFs don't work very well in a highly mineralized environment. Um, but from the organized hunts that have been conducted there, um, there's been quite a few different groups that have, that have held group uh, digs at these spots, mainly like, you know, Brandy's Battle of Brandy Station stuff, uh, the camps surrounding that area. I mean, there's been some really great stuff that's found. I mean, a lot of very rare um, belt buckles that would be attributed to certain Confederate regiments, Confederate states, uh, things that you really don't see very often um, that are just crucial to the archaeological record uh, in terms of that. Um, Artillery shells, those are always great because you can kind of tell based on what shell you've got the size of that shell, what kind of gun that would have come from, and then you can kind of do your research and figure out maybe what battery that came from if you're in their line of fire and that kind of thing. I mean, there's a lot of really cool stuff that you can kind of draw from that. And I know one group hunt, something that was really cool of note, uh, was a case of uh, shaler bullets was found in a camp. And I think this might have been, I don't want to say for sure because I don't know off the top of my head and I'm sure somebody will correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I think it was the Excelsior Brigade camp. So a New York camp. Um, it was a case of shaler bullets and I think it was close to like a thousand of them this fella found. And for those of you listening that don't know what a shaler bullet is, I mean, for relic hunters and archaeologists and historians and stuff, Civil War bullets all have patent names. There's so many different kinds, and it's just crazy. There's like Gardner's, Sharps, uh, Enfields, different different names for different bullets by the people that design them. Well, this one is called a shaler, and this bullet is three pieces. So there's a top, middle, and bottom section of this bullet, and they all fit together almost like a puzzle piece, like a nesting doll. I don't want to say a nesting doll. That's, that's kind of an odd uh, analogy, but they fit together piece by piece. And the idea for this bullet as in a kind of an experimental round is that when you fire it from your revolver, as it leaves the muzzle, it breaks apart into its three pieces. And it's more so like buckshot for a revolver, but in a odd sense, because it, I I don't know, it's a tough one to kind of explain, 
but it's a very unique and very rare bullet. And there was a case of them found. <laughs> yeah, the fact that this guy found almost a thousand of them in one single hole because it was it was literally a crate. I mean, the, the nails and the I think some of the wood even was still there yeah. from the crate. I mean, to find that is just a monumental find, and to attribute it to those camps or that battle is is really something to appreciate because I mean, otherwise it would have been left in the ground forever and nobody would know that it's there or that it was attributed to that battle or that regiment or whatever the case may be. And I mean, it's really something that I get excited about and I know a lot of other archaeologists and relic hunters get excited about because that's something that deserves to be brought to light. I mean, that's a a find of a lifetime. Yeah. I think especially in like pointing to that is this, this Culpeper County, Fauquier County, you know, these ca- this area of Virginia, the Virginia Piedmont, is this is probably in Vir- in the Virginia Piedmont. This that area is the most you know civil war area. That doesn't make any sense, but like the most where the most happened. Like like you know how when people say Winchester, tons happen here. Obviously, battles, skirmishes, but then also just occupations. This is you know for the Virginia Piedmont, Culpeper County is kind of the same. Oh yeah, yeah. With, yeah. You know the Throughout mountains, the, the camps. For any, like the Overland campaigns or the Gettysburg campaign, a lot of these other campaigns start kind of and go there, through yeah. here. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the Second Manassas campaign and what other ones are there? I mean, there's a there's a ton, but it's, and they all go through Culpeper, which is, you know, pretty crazy. So there's a lot to see. Um, a neat thing, and kind of going off what I was saying earlier, I said a lot of this land is preserved and owned by the American Battlefield Trust. And I think just through some legislation in the Virginia General Assembly is and just Virginia State Legislature, um, they've been able to plan for that area to become another Virginia State Park. Nice. So all that Very this good. is yeah, like Rappahannock Station, Brandy Station, um, Cedar Mountain, all these lands that have been preserved by the American Battlefield Trust, Kelly's Fort, like all these will be a part of this like Culpeper Battlefield State Park. So not saying it's like done bad now. It's done great. ABT does a great job out there. But, you know, to be able to have a state entity manage, maintain, interpret, and, you know, in, in perpetuity, um, you know, is huge. It's because you there. know those resources will be, you know, protected. And the Virginia State Parks do a great job for the most part with a lot of the battlefields they maintain, like Sailor's Creek and some other ones down right. in, you know, south side of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, uh, you know, it's exciting to see that working their way and, um, you know, the Commonwealth stepping up and doing its part and maintaining and interpreting these civil war sites. So that's huge. Putting those tax dollars to good use. Exactly. We love it. So yeah, that's, that's a, you know, a kind of a cool thing. And I think when you go out to the battlefield now and you read the interpretive signs, I think there's some that even mentioned that that's the plan for the site. So, you know, it's, it's cool to see and then a next step for these battlefields and, um, the the great work of you know preservationists and, and and historians it's like a you know you know wipe your brow take a breath you know good work you yeah know, it's it's you know to get to that point it's like a full circle moment um, so that's exciting to see for this area of Virginia um, and it's an interesting battle so we encourage everyone to go out there grab that book out flew the sabers by Wittenberg and and Davis. Um, it, it'll get you set up and, and right 
for the opening of the Gettysburg campaign, really. And mm-hmm. technically, this was a little backwards from our first episode, but we couldn't, back, but we couldn't pass up second Winchester, and I don't think we could continue with the first couple episodes we had planned without mentioning Brandy Station. It's an interesting one, and one that I've learned about recently, you know, within the past year that I've decided to dive a little deeper into, and I still have a ton to learn, obviously. Um, but it's a it's a neat one to study. Yeah. And, um, a great yeah. battle. I mean... As great as the battle can be, if you want to call it that. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's definitely one that's worth mentioning. And, I mean, you can't really, like you said, you can't really go further than Brandy without doing an episode on Brandy because everything that you, every episode in the Gettysburg campaign prior, or that you do after that, you're going to be referencing Brandy Station. So you got to get that one out of the way first so that way people kind of have an idea for the framework of the campaign going forward so this once we start to yeah yeah exactly exactly yeah and i think to be able to especially with some valley battles we talk about to be able to mention where the federal cavalry came from ends up and how it gets to where it is without mentioning brandy station or at least hooker's reorganization of the army um it's it's you know you got to talk about this and um especially just it's just interesting to note too that you know, how planned and strategic, and strategic the thought was with this attack. I mean, those three infantry regiments were handpicked to be a part of this. They weren't just three random infantry regiments that, the, that Pleasanton or whoever attached to the cavalry. These were the best, the best, of the, best. The, best the best marchers, too. So they could keep up. They wanted guys that could keep up with the horses. Yeah. Um, not obviously to a pace, but to be able to not be, you know, straggling behind if they needed right. to and then pump them in. Um, and then keep in mind too, I'm pretty sure I was talking with a historian buddy of mine and, um, mentioning how, you know, I was trying to figure out how to define this battle. Like we said at the beginning of the episode, um, and he was saying how, yeah, those, those federal infantry regiments, but also Ewell's Corps is on their way. Obviously we know to the Valley and, um, but before they're headed out of Culpeper, you know, the area of Culpeper courthouse, they're stopped because of that Brandy station, the fighting here. And then they're like, okay, you guys can continue. I'm so there's like, you brought that up. You know, there's a there's a moment where it's like, you will do I need you? And then yeah. it's like, nope, no, can, you can continue on. So it's crazy to think that, you know, that much attention was being brought. It wasn't like a, that's why there's this sense, at least the way I interpret this, it's like for how prepared Stuart tried to make himself to be, he wasn't as prepared as he, he thought. He could have used the help. Could have used the help for sure. Oh, and to define a like a solid victory without any question about it, and avoid all the criticism from the Southern papers, or Pleasant and maybe thinking he's got a victory in mind. He could have used the help, and what's I'm glad you brought that up because it's crazy to me that Lee is watching this battle go down and isn't telling someone, "Hey, get Longstreet's corps or get Ewell's corps." pump them in into the battle like you're right there why would you not throw one of them in at least a division or you know something in there i think yeah that's something i've got to i want to research more of because it's like why didn't yeah he? yeah it's like you know i don't know yeah you're just like you're the general and you're watching you're you know it's like you know what would happen if you know the federals took fleetwood hill and you're like watching that happen and you're like oh crap you know, I, I should have now what? Yeah. yeah. It's like, why watch, you know, <laughs> why, yeah. why stress yourself out with that? And I think there's even something during the battle I read before about how the first main infantry, when they do their charge up Fleetwood Hill, they like continue and they like get really close to where Lee's at, at the house watching. Wow. Yeah. I, I, someone will correct me if that's not right, but I'm pretty sure from what I talked and, and read about 
that like it was something with the first main and they get really close to Lee. Um, but it's, it's, uh, I don't know. It's, it's a really, I, I definitely have more to learn. Um, and this is just, you know, I, I started reading and, and studying and, and going out in the field with this battle. Like I said, I think I was telling you before the podcast, at the beginning of the year, I went out with some coworkers and it was terribly windy and cold, mm. but we hiked you know yep. as much as we could. And to be, like I said, to be on the ground is totally different than looking at these maps and, you know, you're like, oh, there's a hill here, there's a hill here, there's a woodlot here. And they're just like, oh. But to be able to like, oh, okay, well, they crossed a ravine. And then to stand at the lane, you know, the road where the Confederate guns were near St. James Church and then look across the field that the Federals would have charged at you. And then it's like, oh, there's that ravine I read in the accounts. You know, right. that, it it's really still there. puts it all together. Super cool um, stuff. Yeah, it's it's a... Uh, it's really cool, and um, I'm definitely going to have to go back out there soon to try it. And yeah, I definitely want to try and do one of those videos again, like I did for Star Yeah, with maybe that'll Brainy inspire Station. us for a, a little field trip. Or yeah, something. we that's that's our goal with these two is to be able to try and do some field trips with them. So yeah, bring it to our viewers. I mean, get you guys as close to the action as possible. Because I, mean, I know not every every viewer we have is based in Virginia or close to these battlefields. I mean, it's not realistic that everybody can make it out here, but. When that's the case, we can bring it to you if we can record it and, you know, do an episode or a little reel where we can show you guys in person or in video how this actually went down. Yeah, no, I agree. And we'll try to bring you guys as much, like I, like Elijah said, as much resources and information and, and pictures and videos as we can as we go to these places because we've got the benefit of you know, living in the Shenandoah Valley and uh, being close to Valley battlefields, but also on the other side of a mountain from a lot of these other national parks and a wealth of history. Yeah. Tons here. So, um, yeah, no, this, this was a uh, brandy station and you, you poured another class of bourbon over there. So just a little taste, a little, you know, wet the palate, a yeah. little, a little, you know, nightcap. Well, but, um, yeah, yeah, that, that sums up this, this episode, episode two, um we're we, excited for episode three yeah episode sure. three we've got it planned and that'll be coming to you i think the first week in august or the I think second week in august we've got that coming out i don't remember the bi-weekly schedule yeah the bi-weekly schedule you should expect every at least two episodes a month from us posted every wednesday um is the plan not every wednesday every you know but twice Two Wednesdays a month. And if we don't do it, give us hell for it, all right? Yeah. yeah keep us, hold <laughs> us accountable. We've got a couple episodes planned out. We will let you in on a little secret for episode three, Elijah. Kilpatrick. Spoiler alert. Yeah, Kilpatrick Kill Patrick and Stewart. our first guest. Our Ooh. first guest on an episode. I'll say that now. So um, we're excited to have that guest on and uh, talk about the topic. And uh, yeah. Thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to follow and like our pages. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, all the good stuff. Give us a follow, give us a like, a review, whatever you want. Um, it helps us out, and it helps us bring more great content to you guys. Um, we're happy to, to do this, and we love the following that we've built so far. Um, it's been It's been quite a humbling experience just receiving such positive feedback so far. Um, so yeah, if you guys want to want to help us out we'll help you out so um that i guess that'll do it for us for episode two um tune in in august and we'll we'll have episode three for you all right thank you guys yes sir we'll Bye. see you next time